Hello, uh, can everybody hear me? Excellent. So I, I wonder if uh, you saw Four Corners last Monday. Um, it was a uh, Stan Grant who presented a really raw look at what it was like for him growing up as an indigenous indigenous man in Australia, a stranger on his own land. And he spoke of how uh, like Black America um, resonated with him and speaks to him more than the Australian culture does. And how the killing of George Floyd speaks to him, not just of the deaths of Afro-Americans, but also of the Australian First Nations people. And yet, this is what one of uh, a columnist, a white columnist, wrote in response to that program. Grant, though, didn't tell the full story. Black on black violence and sexual abuse wasn't mentioned, nor was the alcoholism that drives much of it, or school truancy among black families. And this is a, a really unfair and defensive response. It ignores the fact that the program was really Grant's, Stan Grant's personal reflections. It was not an investigation into the, the causes and manifestations of indigenous trauma and marginalization. And the trauma that uh, indigenous people have gone through and continue to go through drive uh, many of those lights uh, that the columnist mentioned. The sad thing is that I think many Australians would agree with the columnist, but maybe you do. It's really obvious, isn't it, that despite many years that we've tried to suppress it, Australia's history uh, is not quite what we thought it was. And that Australia today is divided. The first Australians against later comers, Aussie battlers versus inner city latte sippers, conservative religious folk against progressive secularists. And we're increasingly unwilling to stop and listen to one another and try and understand what other people are saying. We're in a culture that's increasingly marked by a lack of grace. And Christians, we're not immune from this either. I mean, even just on this issue, I've seen some Christians focus more on the politics of Black Lives Matter, uh, warning against some of the ideology, ideologies associated with the movement, and not really acknowledging what prompted the, the protests. The cry, I can't breathe, has got lost. Yes, now, of course, we need to be aware of people's agendas and, and uh, things that might take us away from the gospel. But we shouldn't hold people hostage to their beliefs. This is, this is a fearful response, I think. It, it's a fear that uh, this person is a threat to me and mine. This person who is trying to protest uh, the wrongs done to them is a threat to me. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. But it's hard to make peace when we look at our neighbours with fear and suspicion. And to be fair, the world at the moment is quite an anxiety-provoking place. 
we're confined back in our homes, watching the number of COVID cases climb higher, grieving the loss of the little freedom that we had started to enjoy when restrictions were eased, and wondering how long will this go on, and how high will the social and economic cost be when we come through it. In this time, we need extraordinary grace. We need it for ourselves. We need it for our communities. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at how the early church found and extended grace to each other and to the community around it. We're going to look at our need for grace, the sufficiency of grace, and how we can build a community of grace. So as Pete said, we're in the middle of a series on Acts. Uh, last week, we heard how God revealed uh, to Peter that all food and more importantly, all people were clean in God's sight. So Jews could freely associate with Gentiles without becoming unclean. And more importantly, Gentiles could be welcomed in to God's people. And today we come to what's probably the turning point of Acts the Jerusalem Council. So about a decade has passed since Peter's vision of a culinary menagerie and the conversion of the Roman centurion. And in that time, the early church has exploded with the gospel traveling well beyond the boundaries of Judea and Samaria. The church in Antioch, which was Paul's home base, has sent him on his first missionary journey in which he founded churches throughout what is now Southern uh, Central Turkey. Because the Jews lived dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, and these new churches were formed from both Jewish expats and Gentiles, so non-Jewish converts. Some of these Gentile converts had been God-fearers, that is, they'd already been attracted to the Jewish faith, and they'd given up the worship of pagan gods for the worship of the Lord. So Cornelius, who we met last week, is an example of a God-fearer. He observed certain Jewish festivals and practices without becoming a full convert to Judaism. So mix of people, Jewish believers, Gentile God-fearers, and Gentiles who had been converted straight from paganism. And while Peter's vision had led to an acceptance that Gentiles could be welcomed into this new Jesus movement, there were still tensions, tensions between these three groups and debate about what conversion actually looked like, what the Gentiles needed to do to become Christians, to become accepted. And some Jewish believers were teaching that the Gentiles needed to follow, follow Jewish law to be truly accepted. So as the chapter begins, certain people came down from Judea and Antioch, to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this, this dispute was not just in Antioch, but it spread to the other cities and to the other churches and started dividing uh, the church. Now, while the timeline is, is debated, Paul had probably written the earliest of his letters that we have in the New Testament uh, to, adjust, to address just this controversy, the letter of Galatians. The Galatians was sent to the churches that Paul had founded on his first missionary journey. And 
Uh, if the letter was written before the events of Acts 15, uh, we can see in it a fuller picture of the dispute uh, in the church. So in Galatians, we learn there was more than just a doctrinal debate, but it was a real threat to the unity of the church, dividing it along ethnic lines. And Jewish Christians actually stopped associating with Gentile believers, stopped sharing meals with them. It tells us that even Peter, when he happened to be in Antioch, stopped eating with the Gentiles because of these teachings and the pressure from other Jews. So we can see that this is not just a theological issue. Our need of grace is also a social issue, an issue of unity. So as we've, as we've seen, the Jewish Christians, some Jewish Christians were teaching that Gentiles needed to observe the laws and customs of Moses, in particular circumcision, which had been a physical sign that men belonged to God since Abraham, since right, the, the forefather of the Jewish people uh, many, many years ago. So to be clear, the, the issue is not if Gentiles could become part of God's people, but how they can become part of, of God's people. Essentially, it's an, a debate about entrance requirements. It's not to prevent people from joining the church, but to ensure that when they come, they're acceptable, that, they're, that they are fine. It's kind of like why we require drivers to get licenses. It's not because we don't want people to drive cars, but we want to ensure that when people do drive cars, that they... Um, know what they're doing, that they don't end up harming themselves or others when they get behind the wheel. So the Jews who were insisting that Gentiles follow the law may have had no prejudice against Gentiles at all. But then again, perhaps they did. I mean, there had been a long history uh, of, of Jews not associating with Gentiles, and we so often disguise a desire to exclude or a suspicion of others by setting entrance requirements that others can't or are not willing to meet. And the Jewish identity for so long had been built on this idea of being special. Of all the nations, God had chosen them to be his. And they'd given him and he'd given him the, given them the law so that they would be acceptable to him. The law had become a marker of how they belonged to God and others did not. And yes, this is a privilege and it's a completely unearned one, but such privilege so often turns to entitlement. And the gospel can be used to cloak similar prejudice. In the teaching that we need to work for a living and not, not be lazy, that work is good, can be used as an excuse to not extend support to needy holding a traditional biblical view on sexuality can be used to cloak homophobia or to shame single mothers. Even the doctrine that God is love can be twisted. It can hide animosity towards those intolerant Christians who exclude others. So whether the object of our well, contempt, really, whether it's those intolerant bigots or those immoral heathens, underlying this sort of attitude is that, oh, actually, we're better than these people. And the fear that if 
these people who are not quite as good as us. We let them into our community that, that they might change it, that they might taint our community. But whatever underlay the demand that Gentiles follow the law, it was dividing the church, and so the issue needed resolving. So Peter was sent down to Jerusalem to confer with the elders of the church and with the other apostles. And they held a council, an open debate, where they discussed on what terms the Gentiles can be admitted to the church. And Peter, despite his flip-flopping earlier, uh, strongly argues that grace is sufficient for the Gentiles, that the Gentiles don't need to observe the law to become acceptable before God. And he advances two, two arguments. The first is that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. That's a, an obvious sign that they were acceptable to God. And the second argument is, is about purity. And to see uh, what he's getting at here, we need to adjust our thinking. When we read, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Most likely we interpret being saved in terms of me and God, of forgiveness for sin, of being made right with God. And yes, these absolutely are essential to salvation. But if these are the only categories that we use when we're talking about salvation, probably going to struggle to understand both the controversy and the Jerusalem Council's solution to it. So we need to think in, in the categories that a first century Jew did. And I think the important categories here are clean and unclean. So we have looked at this before, but we need to understand this clearly to see why why some Jews are insisting that Gentiles needed to observe the law of Moses. So since God is holy, without any hint of impurity or flaws, in order to come into his presence, you also need to be pure as well. So the Old Testament had many laws uh, so that when you came to the temple when you came and, and offered your sacrifices, you were ritually clean. Uh, this was achieved by living according to the law, so obeying the, the moral teachings, but also uh, avoiding things that made you ritually un unclean. But if you did become unclean, uh, you hadn't sinned, all you had to do was perform, perform certain uh, ritual cleansing uh, washing or uh, give particular sacrifices at the temple. But the Gentiles, of course, they didn't live by the law. They didn't have access to the temple. They couldn't come in. So they had no way to become clean. And so devout Jews avoided contact with Gentiles so that they didn't catch the Gentiles' uncleanness. So they avoided Gentiles so that they would not be made unclean. So this is what's behind the idea that Gentile Christians, if, if they're going to associate with Jewish Christians that they need to observe the law. It's all about maintaining ritual purity. But Peter knows that this is wrong and he tackles this argument head on. He says Gentiles, Gentiles don't need to follow the law to be made clean 
because God has already made them clean. God did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So notice that Peter isn't saying, clean, unclean, this distinction doesn't matter. No, it's still important. What he's saying is the Gentiles have already been cleansed. And he goes on. In fact, he says that the law is not how Jews are made clean either. And in the history of the Israelites is the history of them never living up to the exacting moral and ritual standards of the law. And while rituals such as circumcision and hand washing may make you ritually clean or signify your status, they don't remove your moral pollution. They don't remove the dirt that comes from sin. It's only through the cleansing blood of Christ that anyone, Jew or Gentile, can truly become acceptable before God. As Peter says, now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? No, we believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. So here's Peter saying loudly, salvation is by grace alone. It's Jesus' death on the cross. And it's this death alone that cleanses us from our uncleanness. To paraphrase the English pastor John Stott, the gospel is not a supplement to the Old Testament law, and it doesn't need supplementing by any other doctrine. Christ's sacrifice is not in addition to the Jewish sacrificial systems and the purity purity rituals, but it fulfills them and replaces them. And Jesus' saving work doesn't need rituals added to it for it to be effective in making all who come to Jesus clean. Still, as much as we may know intellectually that we're saved by grace alone, I think we we are tempted to view ourselves as either deserving or undeserving of our salvation. And we're tempted to see other people in, in through that prism as well. We all have have a psychological need to know that we belong, to know that we're good people. So take a look at how James sums up Peter's argument. He uses Peter's Hebrew name, Simon. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Now this is really pointed. Choosing a people for his name Well, that's how the Jews described what God did when he chose them to be his people. But here is James applying it to the Gentiles. So just as God had chosen Jews to be his people, now he was choosing non-Jews to come and join his people. James then quotes from the prophet Amos, who we heard read. And the passage, it's one of the most surprising of the Old Testament. So a few verses before the ones that James quoted at the start uh, of the passage that we read, Amos asks the Israelites, Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Aramaeans from Kerr? 
This is shocking. I mean, the Israelites, their whole identity was founded on being God's special people, that God rescued them. Yet here, Amos is saying, no, you are no different from other nations. More than that, just as God brought you to the promised land and gave you this land, well, he also brought your enemies, the Philistines and Arameans, he brought them to Palestine as well. So, so what's, what's Amos's point? Well, God cares for the whole world, not just for the Israelites. And, and the plan to bless Israel was always so that uh, all the other nations could come to God. But the Israelites, in turning to other gods, in adopting immoral practices, in neglecting justice, the Israelites had become no different from the other nations. And so Amos was warning that in judgment, God would send them out of the land. He'd treat them like any other nation. But that's, that's not the end. God is faithful even when his people are not. So Amos goes on to say that he will re-establish his kingdom under the, uh, a new king, a new son of David. And it would include not just the remnant of Israelis, of Israelites that he brings back from the from exile, but would incorporate Gentiles, would incorporate non-Jews. God's grace in restoring the Jews when they did not deserve it would overflow to the nations. So in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and I will restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations that bear my name. So in both these things, in restoring the people who had failed to live up to the law, and including people from the nations who had never been part of God's people before, these are both acts of extraordinary grace. And with that, uh, Peter and James settled the theological question. Since it was Jesus' blood that purifies both Jew and Gentile, and since the inclusion of both Jew and Gentile were acts of grace, nothing that either Jew or Gentile merited, well then the Gentiles didn't need to follow the Jewish laws and customs to be acceptable to God. As James puts it, we shouldn't put obstacles in the way of people coming to know God. While that settled the theological question, there's still the reality, the social reality of the church. How did the early church overcome these divisions to become a community of grace? Well, James adds four restrictions. That even though the Gentiles don't have to follow the law to be acceptable, he recommends that he should that they should follow these. You are to abstain from food sacrifices, sacrificed idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So, so what's going on here? Well. Just as the Jews should not put obstacles to Gentiles to come to faith, 
Gentiles in turn shouldn't put obstacles in the way of Jews coming to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. But thinking in those categories of clean and unclean, uh, we need to note that this is yeah about purity, about not about morality. These are not uh, things we need to do to be saved. These are practices that would make a Jew richly unclean. And so doing these things would offend Jews. James says next that the law of Moses has been preached in every city from earliest times and is read in synagogues on every Sabbath. So in every, every city where there's a church, there's also a synagogue. And for the sake of the gospel then, James is urging Christians to be good neighbours, to respond to the grace they've received and in being included uh, into God's people by graciously abstaining from those things that would offend Jews and get in the way of sharing with them the gospel. It's, it's well, yeah, it's like the restrictions that we're now observing, which are not just to protect us, but we follow restrictions, we put on masks, we do church on Zoom as acts of love, of ways of loving our neighbours by reducing the chance that we will transmit to them the virus. We are limiting our freedom uh, out of love. So if we think about the gospel, we shouldn't just think about what we're allowed to do, what or what, uh, think about what's moral. I think we need to also think about uh, what will help our neighbours come to know Christ. So what things are we willing to give up or abstain from to help our friends, our family, our co-workers in coming to, know, to come to know Christ? Because if you look back at church history, we have really spectacularly failed to follow James' instructions. I mean, the history of the relationship of Christians and Jews is one of extremely bad neighbours. I mean, to our shame, the church has so often failed to love our Jewish neighbours. In fact, uh, quite often the church persecuted or did not object when Jews were persecuted. And at one level, I mean, this passage is, is kind of irrelevant to us. We, we, we don't have Jews in our church. We don't, most of us don't know Jews. Um, I think this stands in judgment against us. I mean, the fact that there's such an alienation between Jew and Christian speaks to the failure of the church to live out James' exhortation. So what, what stops us from living lives of grace, of being graceful communities? Why is it that we so often end up putting obstacles in the way of others coming to faith? So I think one, one reason is our sins. James singles out sexual immorality. Now this was a particularly offensive uh, thing for the Jews. They had a, a very strict sexual uh, morality that 
Greeks and Romans didn't. And if there's one thing that our non-Christians neighbours know about us, it's that we believe that sex belongs in marriage. So when Christians pursue sexual satisfaction outside of marriage, well, our neighbours can conclude that we're hypocrites, that we are about policing other people's sex lives and we're, we're no better than they are. That's not just sexual sin, is it? Whenever we wrong another, we're placing an obstacle between them and the gospel. In order for us to remove that obstacle, we, we have to let go of our pride and admit the wrong. I mean, we find it often so hard to share the gospel in the first place. We're just making it even harder for ourselves. But I think there's, there's something else that is even more of an obstacle. I mean, what if this person I wronged does become a Christian, becomes part of my church, and, and other Christians find out how I treated this person? This is now a, a threat to our reputation with other Christians. And so we're getting back to fear, fear that our reputation would be damaged fear that others would know we don't measure up, that we're not what we want to be. So fear motivates us, or motivates a lot of uh, the time that people blame other people for their own mistakes. When we blame someone uh, for the wrong we do them. I mean, it, it is easier to blame the victim than to admit that we or the people we identify with are at fault. So I think this is why it's such a contentious issue to admit of Australia's poor treatment of Indigenous Australians. It's a threat to our, our identity as Australians, our reputation uh, as good people. In order to, to to bear this, uh, to swallow our pride, we need to receive grace first. In order to extend grace to others, we need to first have received it. We need to experience the sweet relief that comes from knowing forgiveness and acceptance by God. To know that, yes, I am a sinner, I am not who I want to be, but God loves me that he has included me in his family, that I belong to him, not because of who I am, but despite of it. And that he is changing me into the person he wants me to be. This is what frees us to admit our mistakes, to humbly go and ask for forgiveness, and to do the hard task of sharing the gospel of grace, even when we may have wronged them. So we can only love others once we have been loved. We can only accept others into our lives once we know that we are accepted, that we belong. And if you trust that Jesus' death has cleansed your sins, you can be absolutely sure that God does love you and that you do belong to him and you belong to the church. I mean, we know this because he has given us his spirit to live within us. This is what marks us as Christians, 
commit, what a much better sign than circumcision. The Holy Spirit makes real to us the peace of being known by God. The peace that passes all understanding. And it empowers us to bring this peace to the anxious and divided world we live in. If you're not yet a believer or you're not sure about Jesus, this is what's on offer. Peace with your creator. A solid foundation on which you can build your life. Because you know that you belong to your father in heaven. And that you have family uh, all over the world. One of the, the privileges of, of being a Christian is being able to walk into a church in a city that you've just arrived in and know that this is family. This is where I belong. So as I I'll finish up leaving you with, with this last thought. As Pete said, in our missional communities, we're going to go through Ephesians, which is all about how God has reconciled Jew and Gentile and turned them into a single community of grace. So as you read through Ephesians in your own time, and as you discuss it in your MCs, uh, perhaps you can consider what obstacles to grace are preventing you from loving your neighbours. Or what things maybe you need to give up so that you can share the gospel more easily with your neighbours and welcome them into God's family. And you can encourage one another that you need not fear rejection because, as, it, as John said in his first letter, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And Jesus took our punishment and has made us clean. This is extraordinary grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have adopted us into your family, that there is, that you do not distinguish between Jew or Gentile, but have made us clean by the blood of your son Jesus. Thank you that you have sent your spirit to mark us as Christians uh, so that we, we know that we belong to you and to empower us to go out into your world as peacemakers and ambassadors for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.